great entrance, we cannot mention non-orthodox. <laughs> How many think true? <clears throat> and, the, and the second part of the question, we can mention or commemorate groups such as those perished in the earthquake in Colombia. Don't do the uh, evaluation now. We have a lecture coming. <laughs> By your response, I see you, uh, you understood the answer to that. I think everybody's been very, very clear that in the great entrance, we don't mention individual names of non-Orthodox. And if there has been a major catastrophe, we can pray for the whole group. But they don't have individual names, so it's not the same thing. I have some housekeeping. Those handouts I mentioned to you yesterday are available through the kindness of uh, Deacon O'Day, and I thank him for that. And the other thing was, when we were talking about the lectionary, there's a, a huge green book back there on the table, a huge green book, which covers every pericope mentioned in the church year and gives a, a magnificent background of it and there's uh, some information drawn from very orthodox sources uh, on related issues such as the entire genealogy of Christ and uh, the relationship with some of the apostles who were tied into his family and, and an abbreviated life of the Virgin Mary and all of that is, is really very well done and you ought to have a look at that before you leave. I have to cover today the same material that Father Antipas had to cover yesterday. <clears throat> and I, I can't do that. It's altogether too much material in too short a time. So I'm going to pick and choose those in charge have suggested certain things really need to be looked at. Okay. That haven't been touched on. And there were a couple of things I wanted to throw in as we went. I think we've heard about enough about baptism and marriage. To, uh, to write several books. <laughs> but we, I, I think, well, so some of these might be out of order. That's the way I'll do it. I'll take it as it comes. On the Paraclis, which we've heard also tons of things about. Uh, the Lesser Paraclis, which is uh, alternately ascribed to Theosterictus, the monk of Bithynia, or Theophanos Graptos, the branded, the confessor of Marsavas, who later became the Metropolitan of Nicaeus. Uh, he, his dates are the ninth century. He was a 
he suffered persecution under the iconoclasts. And because of his steadfast support of veneration of icons, they wrote ugly things across his uh, forehead permanently while they were torturing him. And he wore that like several of the other saints for the rest of his natural life. And you see his continued confession in that one verse that we sang in the Megalarian when he said, speechless be the lips of those who refuse to venerate uh, the most pure icon of the Theotokos, which has been depicted for us by Luke the Evangelist. And of course he's referring to the Odigitria icon of the Virgin which hung over the main gate in Constantinople. <clears throat> and so even in his hymnography he managed to stick a dig in about uh, the the importance of venerating icons, and not only just how important they are, but we've had them from the beginning and they come from the apostles. And that particular poem is full of spectacular uh, theology. There's the great uh, Paraclis, which is alternated, was done by Emperor Theodore Lascaris in the 13th century already during the, uh, the Latin occupation of Constantinople. He was uh, emperor in Nicaea, and he wrote that hymn to the Virgin, and they are alternated. But uh, that one's really rather late in the, in the middle of the Mid-Ages uh, that he wrote that. There have been many, many paraclesi written on that basis, often with the same melody, to a uh, whole host of saints. There's a very, very nice one to St. George. There's uh, a nice one to the cross. There's... Uh, Hmm? We really? By uh, whom? Well, I, I see. The, the Greeks have written lots. There are books, whole books of uh, paraclesi that you can do. And there is a spot towards the end, at the end of the Megalinarian, where you can insert the Megalinarian of the patron of your temple, if you're doing it, which is, is truly delightful if you have them. They exist in Greek, and they're rhymed and, or, and metered and made to fit the music very nicely. And usually when we translate them in English, they don't. And it takes a bit of a struggle. They, the form, that form of service can be done to any saint you want. If you noticed, it was a matin service. Kind of cut down. And you pull the gospel for the saint to the, uh, that you're praying to and put that gospel in the center... And you take the canon to that saint, if they don't have a supplicatory canon, and like I said, there's quite a few, you can take the canon from their feast and plug it in there. And that was a very standard form of, of service done to the uh, saints all across the Orthodox world for many, many centuries to put it in that form. And eventually in Russia they got a little lazy for looking up the canons and they cut them out. And they put the refrain in there, you know, Holy Saint, whoever prayed to God for us a couple times. And this is the Malevin that you hear the Russians talk about or you see in, in some of our service books that print it. It's a paraclis, is what it is, without the canon. But other than that, it's exactly the same thing and uh, much briefer, of course, without the canon, but also without all the beautiful hymnography. Are you interested in the, uh, the use of the Kadavasiyas? Or is that not well, so? Perhaps you can explain canon. Oh boy. All right, well, you saw a canon last night. The canon of the Paraclis <laughs> is a typical canon, and it's of typical size. 
If you noticed in your matin service, in the middle of Orthros, we sing these katavasiyas on the spot where it says canon. If any of you have ever opened the great Orologian, or even one of the small Orologia, you see, or if you have the Psalter from the 70, an Orthodox Psalter at the back, there's the nine biblical odes listed. Uh, Ode 1 is the Ode of Moses in the Exodus, Exodus 15, verse 1 through 19, which when Pharaoh was drowned and Moses opened his mouth and sang a hymn to God. We sing it on, as one of the readings on Holy Saturday. And when the great hymnographers wrote their canons, the very first verse, the Irmos, which sets up the rhythm for the, uh, the rest of it, it usually makes mention of something in that hymn. And these, these verses would be sung on that, that biblical ode the same way we put verses in Lord I Call or the verses on the praises. We sing the interverse from the ode, then you sing the ode of, the, of a tropar from the canon, then an interverse from the ode, and a tropar from the canon. You go all the way down that way. This was the way it was done anciently. And then you go to the next ode. Ode 2 is the ode of Moses in Deuteronomy, verse, or chapter 32, verse 1 through 43. After the law had been written, uh, Moses made this prayer, and it's... Uh, it's very penitential and talks about God's judgment on those who don't keep the law. You'll notice in all the canons you go from one to three, you skip number two. It's only done during Lent and only on Tuesdays when it falls in the, the order because during Lent you only take three odes at a time. So you always take eight and nine. So each of the other days you choose one or the other uh, according to pattern. So Monday you take one, so Tuesday you take two. And that's where you'll see it. Ode 3 is the prayer of Anna, the mother of Samuel the prophet, from 1 Kings, chapter 2. And if you'll, uh, if you'll notice when you're seeing, singing the seasonal cut of a sea or the resurrectional canon, you might see mention there of that particular uh, biblical thing. Ode 4 is the prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, chapter 3. Ode 5 is the prayer of Isaiah the prophet, Isaiah 26, 9 through 20. Ode 6 is Jonah, verse 2. And Ode 7 is the first part of the prayer of the three holy children, Daniel 3, 26 through 56. And it's, uh, it's followed, 8, by the, uh, the rest of that, 57 through 88, from the same hymn of the three holy children. And then 9 is both the song of the Theotokos, the Magnificat, followed by the prayer of Zacharias, the father of the forerunner, both from Luke, chapter 1. And the way it anciently was done was those would be sung with verses on the canons stuck in between. On any normal weekday, you should have three canons. Uh, there's two given in the toichos and usually one for the saint of the day, and you do them in that order putting them in the, the verses and then singing Gloria now before you finish the whole thing. On Sunday, there's four, maybe five, are normally sung. On a weekday, it takes half an hour. If you don't do the biblical odes, if you just read the canons, on Sunday, you get four or five, so it stretches to a little bit longer. 
And you'll often see that in a Greek parish if you're visiting. Uh, a lot of the Greek priests do do the, the, all the troparia and everything. And then at the end of each ode, you throw in the seasonal katavasia, which follow the cycle that we see in the liturgical guide. <clears throat> right now, we're just finishing up our use of the uh, katavasia for the presentation of Christ into the temple. And they, that on weekdays would not be done, but if a great saint, then you would do it. On Sundays, for sure you do it. Our current practice is just to do the seasonal katavasias and not to uh, sing any of the odes on the canon and none of the biblical material either. Uh, it is the, uh, the current custom in our Tipicon that uh, we don't do the biblical odes at all. They're just historically there and you understand them because you hear the verses and you sing other sorts of verses in between, like on a canon to the Theotokos, most holy Theotokos save us, or something has to do with Jesus Christ, glory to thee, our Lord, glory to thee, on his feast days and stuff like that, or holy saint whoever pray to God for us. So <clears throat> that's where those verses come from in the Malieven. Those are exactly the verses that they stick in, depending on whether it's to our Lord or the Lady, or to whatever saint. Since most of us don't, don't do those things on the, in the services. And when you heard Father Antipas explain daily matins, he mentioned just eight and nine, and that was it. And that's become the custom. In the Arabic Menaean, for most of the weekdays, they don't give you the canon on the saint, which shows that it hasn't been in use in our patriarchate in a many, many, many years, uh, at least a hundred. Because if they were in daily use, then when they translated things from Greek, they would have translated them. And because they didn't, you can be pretty sure that they haven't used them in a hundred years. Uh, however, because they're not in use doesn't mean you can't read them yourself as part of your daily devotions if you can ever get them. They're full of very nice, pious material that can inform your heart and inform your soul and nourish you. And I, I I really urge you, if you ever get a hold of the service books of the church, the real things, you know, the Triodian, the Pentecostarian, to uh, use them in your daily prayers, read the verses for the day, and see what the church is saying. It, uh, it can really fill your soul in many, many beautiful ways. <coughs> Next thing up is Holy Week and Pascha, and I'm supposed to be talking about the historical development of these things. and. I think as I do, in this case, historical development has modern ramifications, and I'm going to mention them as we come by. The fast itself uh, developed. You heard Father uh, Antipas talk about how brief the fast before baptism was, and that was the Holy Week fast. A couple of days, maybe a week. It was only later that it spread uh, to 40 days, and already are in the 4th or 5th century, the time of the Holy Fathers. Uh, all the fasts came into being by then, and you get a, an absolutely exciting statement by Anastasius the Sinite, Patriarch of Antioch, uh, both from 561 to 570, and again from 594 to 598. Uh, there was somebody else in between. And he wrote a letter to somebody else, but it's been uh, collected among canonical statements. It says, We in Antioch have firmly received the apostolic establishment 
of three fasts in the course of the year. The uh, fast of Great Lent, the fast of Christmas, and the fast from Pentecost to the Dormition. That's all summer. Clearly the church has altered its custom. And what you'll see is, has happened, if you're familiar with the Christmas fast, you know, it starts off very light, and then in December, around the 12th, it becomes rather heavy. Whereas Great Lent starts out heavy and stays that way all the way through, but Christmas doesn't, and we get that graduated approach. This fast was graduated. It started out light after Pentecost, and by the time you got towards August, it was pretty heavy. Now, by a glance at the calendar, you can see they chopped out the month of July, just exactly. They just picked the month of July out of the fast, so you have the light beginning and the heavy end, and you missed the whole middle of it, wherever the, uh, the change was. And that's why your Dormition fast is heavier than the uh, Apostles' fast, because it was the same fast, and you've got the beginning and the end of it, but nothing like the middle of it. So that was the sixth, moving towards the seventh century that the church had those three three fasts, that would make your month of July very exciting around the 4th. You know, it's kind of hard to barbecue. <laughs> things like that. But, you know, it's important to notice that these things do change. And not always for the lighter, because you see, at this time, there is floating around in piety a fast that looks like it might settle in a few centuries in the beginning of September. It's been floating around for about a hundred years, and more and more people talk about it, and uh, each generation goes by, you see more people taking it for granted that there is a fast in the first, first 14 of September for the cross. It's a strange sort of thing, and it's not written down anywhere, but it, it's, you hear it here and there. And that's the way liturgical life develops. Our great-grandchildren may suddenly discover that it's the custom always held in the church to fast the first 14 in September. And we wouldn't have heard anything about it. But the church life changes with the times and does different things. And this is manifestly the case in Holy Week. The addition of Cheese Fair Week comes from that period. You remember we mentioned that the monks in Studian and the monks of Marsabas merged their two typica somewhere in the middle of the 13, 14, 1500s. And as they were doing that, they discovered they had a different fast of Lent. The Palestinians always had kept a longer Lent than they had in Constantinople. So they didn't know what to do about that. Neither side wanted to uh, give up their custom. So we adopted the Constantinople fast and added a week of half fasting in the beginning to make the monks in Palestine happy. <coughs> so now we end up with eight weeks of Lent, maybe, or seven weeks of Lent, maybe, depending on how you want to look at it. See how uh, pastoral the church has always been. That we, we care for each other, even in matters that look like, oh my gosh, it fell from heaven. Well, it didn't. It's a matter of, uh, of love and care for each other, and neither side wanted to scandalize the other, so they found a way to make it work. And it's, it's nice to think about that when we get to Cheese Fair Week. The, uh, the monks at the Studion, I mentioned before, created the Triodion and the Pentecostarian. 
they were working precisely at the time that adult baptism had just about disappeared with the catechumenate and no longer was there the need for this period to be a period of uh, baptismal instruction. So they made it a period of uh, penitential introspection, which is a fine thing to do. It enabled us to uh, reassess our lives in light of our own baptism. And that is now the theme for the whole of the uh, Triodian period. And they finished this off in the 10th century. So it's a, it's a thousand years we've been doing it this way. The, uh, some of the older themes still float through because they used older hymnography. And you'll see that if you very carefully observe the hymns, you'll see more ancient things floating around. And it's very beautiful to see that there are layers of the way we did things. They used the best hymnographers the church has ever produced. Uh, all the great names show up in the uh, Triodian. Uh, the monks of Marsavis, like Patriarch Sophronius and John of Damascus and Cosmos of Mayuma, along with the monks of Studian, like uh, Theodore the Studite and Joseph, his brother, and uh, the other Theodore that uh, did the canon for weekdays, Theophanes Graptus, Joseph the hymnographer, the Emperor Leo the Wise, all of these uh, spectacular hymn writers contributed to this particular work. The very most recent things weren't added till the 15th and 16th century, which is very recent indeed, which is open to me the doors of repentance, O life giver, which we just sang last Sunday for the first time, is incredibly recent in its place in the Triodian. It's probably the last thing to fall in there. Although it's a very ancient hymn, it probably was done on all matins, all the time, in certain local areas, and later they decide to make it part of the uh, Triodian. And the lamentations that we sing on Holy Friday are very recent as well, uh, coming from the same time, 14th, 15th century, and they are of, of recent origin too. They were probably written about that time. There's tons of more Triodian material floating around in various manuscript Triodia. When the printers in Venice first put together the printed editions, somebody picked one edition to print. And that became the standard. And they only picked it because they had it at hand. Everything else is part of the tradition of the church. Everything else is good and wonderful and holy. We just don't have access to it. We have the one that's printed by maybe the act of God and, and maybe not. But you know, there it is. Now, in Holy Week, Lent ends, you know, the Friday before Palm Sunday, Friday before Lazarus Saturday. And Palm Sunday to Easter is a whole different period. It's a Holy Week fast, which is completely separate from Great Lent. It has different focus, different way of, of thinking about things. Uh, one of the most important things to notice is the procession in Palm Sunday is incredibly ancient. It goes back to the earliest centuries and no one has kept it except us. Greeks don't use it. It fell out of use in Constantinople by the 11th century. So the Russians never got it. We're the only ones that have hung on to it through our, uh, our Holy Land connections, and it's, it's probably one of the most beautiful and well-known parts of our Holy Week, and people come to church just for that. I mean, 
in most of the churches in the East, I don't know about out here, that's the biggest attendance of the year. It uh, by far doubles Easter. And Christmas is nothing compared to Palm Sunday. We get visitors, uh, people uh, rent other people's children just so they can bring them and go in the procession. Because <laughs> it's, it's important. It's my favorite Sunday. I just, I, I love to have the church full of all those children and, and I, I like the sound of the hubbub and I like the confusion and, and uh, it's a great blessing. I, I really enjoy it. And then we no sooner finish that and then we start Holy Week and Holy Week is strange because the first thing you'll notice is the anticipated services. Everything's moved up half a day. I've read uh, different things on how and why and uh, a lot of them are rather fanciful. I, I just read one today that I, I found uh, probably as fanciful as they come. It, it happened very anciently. It happened because of the Jerusalem Patriarchate's uh, influence on Holy Week. We talked about those ancient sung services, remember, which were done in the great centers like Constantinople and whatnot. Jerusalem was one of the first to get rid of those, as you recall, along with us. And with, when, the, when the sung services left, something else had to take their place. And this Holy Week you see right here is basically a Jerusalem invention of the post-sung service era. So places that were still keeping the sung service did not have our Holy Week. That means that from the 10th and 11th century, there were people using this Holy Week. Simultaneous, all the way up through the 15th century, people who were not using this Holy Week. For example, Thessalonica and Novgorod were probably the last not to adopt this Holy Week because they were using the older sung service type. People look at the older uh, uh, Constantinople Great Church Tipicon, the now defunct one, <laughs> which actually became defunct there in the 1200s, 1100s, and imagine that that was in use there until the Turks. And it's not true. And I, I tried to make that clear when I talked about the Tipicon, and I re reiterate it now very strongly. Constantinople stopped doing the sung service by the 11th and 12th century. And that included their older form of Holy Week. They went to this Holy Week already that early. And this one came to them with the anticipation. It wasn't done in Constantinople the way it's, you would imagine, with matins in the morning and vespers at night from the time it arrived. It was done in Jerusalem with vespers at night and matins in the morning for a long time there. But by the time they were exporting it, it had already become anticipated. And this, this happened in the whole entire universal Christian Catholic Church. I include Rome. The services already by the Middle Ages in Rome are anticipated, just like we do it. So you cannot say that it's an anomaly that occurred during the Turcocratia, because how in the heck did it affect Rome all those centuries before. Now this is a universal experience. It's something that happened in Holy Week 
that was so important that it affected every church all over Christendom before even the split. So it's a very, very ancient thing to have happened, this anticipation. And for well over a thousand years, Orthodox Christians have been celebrating Holy Week in anticipation. One service ahead all the way down through since Palm Sunday until you get to Holy Saturday. Any of the explanations I've heard as to why, uh, there's, there's not a strong enough opinion anywhere, so I won't advance any of them. But it's been so long ago that it simply doesn't matter. There are people that are always calling to have it turned back the way it was. Let's start doing Vespers at night and Matins in the morning. And you end up with a, with a roadblock down the end on a holy Saturday afternoon and evening, which becomes pastorally very difficult. And I, I would never suggest such a thing. I think if the church has been keeping a custom for a thousand years, it probably has a good reason for it. Rome went and changed back in the 60s, back to the other way. And I think that is the impetus to people who are asking us, please, why don't we change back, why don't we change back? But uh, Rome's changes led directly to their changes of Vatican II, and I, I think that most observers would say that none of those changes were healthy in light of how it affected their church life. And I would be very, very cautious before I'd make such a change with ours for fear that it would lead to the same disaster. <clears throat> uh, those who are familiar with the Western service uh, may remember the Tenebrae Matins from long ago. That's, that is the anticipated bridegroom Matins of our church. Each one of those has a different theme, and they're rather late in coming. The main theme of early Holy Week that is incredibly important is the theme of the Second Coming. This is an old theme in Holy Week, and an important theme. If you think of the uh, Gospel readings at those pre-sanctified liturgies on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday, they're heavily focused on the Second Coming. And these Gospels come from a very early strata uh, long before the forms of the services that we have now. And they, uh, they show something in the mind of the church, that as we approach Pascha, suddenly we begin thinking of the second coming. The ancient Western church did the same thing at Christmas. And that parallel is awfully important. We're going to end Holy Week with Pascha, and we will, we will read the Gospel, John 1.1. 1, 1. The West ends the week before Christmas, with the Gospel John 1.1, 1, 1, the ancient West did. There's a strong parallelism here, which is not a coincidence. The idea that focusing on the Second Coming somehow brings you to John 1.1 1, 1 is a, a universal Christian experience. Whether you did it at Christmas or whether you do it at Easter, it draws you in that direction. And, well, maybe it's the other way around. Reading John 1.1 1, 1 makes you think about the Second Coming. But somehow, it's the same thing. The, uh, the Holy Wednesday night, there's a bridegroom service which was anciently done there. And <clears throat> I remember when I was in seminary, a lot of the students were crowing, oh, we've lost the last bridegroom service because we do that awful oil service. Oh, we, we, we want to go back to the bridegroom. And I asked Father Antun Khoury, who was our teacher, 
it's now Bishop Bantu, and I said, did we lose the bridegroom service? What happened to it? He said, oh, no, 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 no. We all do the, that bridegroom service. Uh, and he meant it like he assumed everybody did it everywhere. You do it on Thursday morning, before you do the Vesper Liturgy. And I said, I never heard of that. And he said, open the five-pounder and look. So I opened it up, and there it was. There it is. We didn't lose a thing. The last bridegroom is there. All you have to do is serve it. So, <laughs> so you don't need to complain about the cycle that we've got. All you have to do is get out of bed. <laughs> the holy oil service is there. That is from the Turkokratiyu. There's no doubt about it. The, uh, during the time that the Turks were heavy on the land, and this affected everything from Egypt to the Balkans, which is most of orthodoxy now, isn't it? There was, like I was talking about before, there was a lot of destruction of church life. Many, many parishes had no priests. Many parishes had priests that were totally untrained. They could read a little bit, so they could read the services, and the people could pray, and they could be orthodox, and they could have the sacraments. But pastors are, uh, that is, our arch-pastors, bishops, who are, there are pastors, are reluctant to let uh, farmers and greengrocers with no training hear confessions and become spiritual guides. And we heard a little bit about that this week, and that's, that's a strong, embedded custom in the church for our own good and our edification. So most parishes had not access to uh, spiritual guides, and monks would travel from the monasteries from village to village and try and, and supply their needs. And you can read about that uh, in the lives of some of the recent Greek saints. They were these traveling evangelists, like, who traveled and took sacraments around to villages that didn't have them. So a lot of strange things occurred. If you have Serbians in your parishes, if you have Greeks from the islands in your parishes, you'll notice that they take communion very seldom. And when they do, they fast for a week. And, you know, strict fasting, and then they eat nothing all day Friday and Saturday, and then they crawl to church if they can still stand up, and they, they hope to receive communion. And I've actually seen old ladies laying on the pews because they couldn't even sit up because they'd fasted and they were too old to handle it anymore. And all of this comes from that period when they couldn't keep a regular church life. And you know that the church canons are that if you aren't in the sacraments, then you're out of them until you can be brought back in through penance. And, and they couldn't find the means to do it properly, so they went through these tremendous fasting things and to kind of make up for, uh, for their lack of, of spiritual guidance. And someone came up with the bright idea that if you used the holy oil on Wednesday, it would heal your soul and your body, like it says. And it's probably true. You know, if the church goes around saying it, uh, it often happens that way. So they began to use it on Holy Wednesday night as preparation for the Holy Thursday communion because, or your Easter communion because people tended to want to take communion that time of the year. And monks couldn't be had to do all the work and they went to do it to this. And it, uh, it served its need. It did it a very, very well. And People talk a lot about spiritual healing, and they say it's not a magic act that uh, just because we pray over you doesn't mean that you're healed. 
But somehow, if you're open and you have your heart sincere and you're looking for some kind of healing, God does do it. Ah, he really does. So we have this beautiful service there that we now do as a preparation, spiritual preparation for ourselves, not to mention for all the sick that we have. And we do, most of us, reserve the holy oil from that night and we use it for our sick for the whole year long. And uh, we try and get most of our people to go to confession before that service as preparation for it. Now that we can do both, we do it. And then the next morning, you can get up and do the last bridegroom. And I do encourage you to do it because it's beautiful. It's all about the Last Supper. And it sets up that Vesper Liturgy really very nicely. And the troparion for it is, that, uh, is the Holy Thursday troparion. Uh, when the disciples uh, participated, they became enlightened, Judas became darkened and all of that. It's, it's, it's lovely to see that connection and go right through there. A lot of people are interested in the foot washing service that shows up on Holy Thursday. And I've seen a lot of strange copies of things floating around. And I, I will ask you to be very careful if you have some kind of an order for a foot washing service. Uh, make sure that it's, it's orthodox and that it's, uh, it's ours. I have it with me. I thought I might like to share some parts of it with you because it is in some ways controversial and will need to be looked at. It is, its existence is quite ancient and it exists both in the West and in the East and has been done for all these many centuries. But it's also very recent in that there's a form of it which was just recently appeared in the Patriarchate of Jerusalem. And both forms float around in the Orthodox Church. And uh, I guess I don't have it with me right now. So I'm going to have to just tell you the things you need to know out of it. It is arranged to be done by bishops in their cathedral churches. And I say it just that way with no apologies or explanations besides that. It might can be done by abbots in their monasteries, but it isn't prescribed to be done in parishes in any form whatsoever. No matter where you look, it doesn't say that. The two forms of it are uh, simple and beautiful and dramatic and frightening. But you can take your choice, I guess. Uh, the one form appears in the Evchologion, all the Evchologion. It's known the world over. The Russians have it, the Greeks have it, we have it. It's, and it's the one that's represented in your gospel book. If you've noticed the, the two gospels for the foot washing there, it's a very simple service. The deacon reads the gospels just like that. The chanters sing the hymns that are to be sung, and then the bishop, the patriarch, the abbot, does the foot washing, and that's the end of it. The other form, the, the, the very recent Jerusalem form, appears in the uh, Tipicon as an appendix, and it's, the heading of it is, this service is not prescribed in the Tipicon, 
but it's done in some places and here it is. And they give you the Jerusalem form of it. And it's, it's very elaborate. The gospel, there's a different set of gospels and they're done out in a dramatic form with, a, with people taking different parts. Jesus, the apostles, the narrator, and uh, it's done in, in that kind of dramatic form. And the foot washing is done almost as a drama. There was, there's a whole movement to do dramatic things during Holy Week, very recent. And this, this form also exists. Both forms are to be done outside of the church. The rubrics are very clear. Procession forms after the Vesper Liturgy, immediately after the Vesper Liturgy, and proceeds to the place in the courtyard where they're going to make the service, and on a platform properly set up, they do it. And if you all uh, want to do it in your parishes, and you want to do one or the other of the forms, I have it, it's probably over in the, next to the chapel right now, in the other notebook. And you can take a copy of it if you like. I can uh, leave it with uh, Father Najm, and he can have it reproduced at the cathedral, or you can reproduce it, or whoever wants to. But you're going to need to have Episcopal guidance as to which form you're going to use and how you're going to do it. Because I, uh, you, you can't just do any old thing, and it's going to need to be modified somehow. Because it talks about the bishop and his priests, and you're going to have to do something with that. And uh, my personal recommendation is go for the Ephcologian form because it's very liturgical in style and its simplicity is, uh, is very recommended. Uh, not to mention the fact that your energy level is going to be running down somewhere there. Because if you have done the bridegroom service and you have done the Vesper Liturgy of St. Basil and you have been fasting and now you're doing this, and it's moving on towards noon, I don't know how much you're going to be able to accomplish. So before you, before you attempt it, make sure you look at the whole order and uh, talk to your bishop and see how much you can do and how much you can't and uh, what your own energy level might be up to pastorally. But that's the spot it's set at. And I've been asked for the last couple of years, people call the house, where do you do it? When do you do it? Well, that's when you're supposed to do it. If you're going to move it someplace else, and do something else, then you're starting to get way outside the tradition and uh, you will definitely need Episcopal guidance if you're going to do something else. That evening is the 12 Gospel Matins. The gosp those 12 Gospels are left over from the ancient sung service, but that wasn't the service, but we kept the Gospels <clears throat> in the same order that they always were. That was probably an all-night uh, affair that... Uh, formed part of the vigil of the, uh, of the Passion itself. It's a very important service in our patriarchate. Everybody likes it. The uh, procession with the cross, you must know, originated in the Church of Antioch and was adopted in Constantinople no earlier than 1824. That's how recent it is. So when your Russian neighbors are not doing the procession with the cross, you know why. It, they didn't get it. It's, it's antiquine. It's definitely our own tradition. Greeks do it now, but it came from us. And 
The modern, it, the way it was set up to be done, and I think the way they still do it in the old countries, they carry the cross, hey, around the church and sit it up. The carrying the cross on the shoulder, the way we do in this country, is of much more recent venue. Uh, Father Lafoon, when your uncle did it on television, do you remember the date? That was the first time it was ever done. Uh, Early 60s, I, yeah, I was thinking late 50s, so in the early 60s. The, video, the, uh, the film of it is at the Archdiocese. They used to rent it out. You could have it sent to your church and look at it. <laughs> uh, there was a national syndicated uh, religious television program, which was very popular in those days. Lamp into my feet, I think it was called. And they approached the Antiochian Orthodox Parish in Patterson and asked could they come to Holy Thursday and tape highlights of the 12 Gospel service and show them on television on that show. So Father Michael Simon, who was the pastor there, probably one of the greatest priests in our archdiocese, a spectacular, spectacular man, uh, and his father, Lafoon's uncle, he uh, approached Metropolitan Bashir and asked him, can we do this? And he said, oh, yes, yes, go ahead. And he, they started to talk about, you know, what parts were going to be filmed and how they were going to do it. And uh, Metropolitan Anthony came up with the idea that we need to do something to beef the service up. You know, it's kind of bland. Why don't we carry the cross this way? So it was done specifically for the television show. <laughs> and everybody saw it. The whole country saw it, and we're very excited by it. And then the diocese provided films of it. So it, it's, it became the custom in the diocese. I know it shocks priests that come from the old country the first time they see it. It's this. We didn't do it that way. And I've heard all sorts of protests about it. Uh, but Metropolitan Philip himself does it at the cathedral. I mean, this is, it's become our, our custom here. Uh, certainly an interesting one. Are they picking it up? <laughs> well, that's the way our Antiochian church is. We, since we brought the procession with the cross in to begin with, anything we do with it is liable to spread around too. <laughs> you know, you're dealing with very recent things here. And, uh, you know, we talk about the ancient tradition of the church, and I, I can't emphasize enough to you how the tradition continues to grow and continues to develop as the years go by. And that one... I mean, there's a tradition that's only 160 years old and is already undergoing even greater change. This is a direction in liturgical celebration towards dramatic representation. It's uh, in the last 150 years, we've seen more and more of it come into the church, and I suspect that we'll see more and more. I heard things out of Holy Cross now that our seminarians are there in this direction. The Greeks are definitely moving in, in the direction of uh, dramatic representation. The next day, the royal hours, now here you go back to very ancient times. These are probably basically unchanged since the very beginning of Byzantine times. And uh, just like Pentecost, Christmas, and Theophany, the uh, royal hours were attended by the Byzantine emperors in the Cathedral of Hagia Sophia, so they maintain much of the ceremony of the, uh, of the ancient sung offices. 
and the style of them. The next service that we do, the taking down from the cross, the apocathelesis, is another one of those very recent uh, Greek innovations that uh, moves towards dramatic representation. Uh, the procession with the epitaphios, the taking down from the cross, and the other procession at uh, Good Friday are all of uh, 16th century origin. Very recent in the, in the tradition of the church, and that's why you don't see these things being done in the Russian churches, because they don't, it doesn't come from them yet, although they're picking them up just like everybody else is, and this is becoming universal tradition. So we're living, we're getting to see tradition grow in our own eyes. The, uh, according to the rubrics, you need to have a bit of clergy help there with the uh, taking down from the cross, which most of us don't have. So you end up interrupting the gospel at the proper point, running out, taking down the cross, bringing it in, then picking up the gospel again. Uh, it probably wasn't the way it was meant to be uh, presented, but there it is. The uh, liturgy of Great Friday was originally a presanctified. And it was originally a presanctified before there were any other presanctifieds. And it's still that way in the West, or had been, I mean, before Vatican II, I, I don't know what they do now. But our Western Rite has a presanctified on that day, and Constantinople had one up until 1200. The, uh, the existence of this presanctified was because it was, it was the non-liturgical day from before they took the liturgy out of the rest of the time. Now, we don't even have it. It's gone from here, but it's showed up in the rest of Lent because it's the Eastern custom not to celebrate liturgy on weekdays uh, during Great Lent. The presanctified liturgy itself that we now do uh, is of slightly different origin. It comes from the monks at the desert uh, serving vespers and uh, taking communion, which they did on Wednesday and Friday nights in their cells all over the Orthodox East. And in the parishes that were using monastic-style services, Wednesdays and Fridays throughout the church year were presanctified liturgy days. And they would, it wasn't a liturgy. They served vespers, and they took communion. And little by little, the service was Byzantinized and became what we have it today. The attribution to St. Gregory the Logos is uh, fantastic. And it comes from uh, a very interesting source. It, it's really worth looking at, just to see how traditions pop up. That uh, Gregory the Ologos, the Pope of Rome, codified the services in the West. And he wrote a lot of lives of saints. He was a very popular priest and bishop in his day. And after his passing, he was widely venerated in the East and the West. He was you can't say he was any less beloved in Jerusalem than he was in Rome. And it's hard to say why, but he was a man of that type of stature and a church leader of a really world influence. So his life, which was read in the churches in the East, always wrote at the bottom, and this is the man who put together the liturgies of Great Lent, because he put together the daily liturgies of Great Lent in the West which they still serve in our Western Rite today. Those liturgies are his. And there's a different one for every single day, a, a unique liturgy, like each day is a feast day during Great Lent. 
Well, for all those years, that was printed at the bottom of his life, right at the very bottom. And he put together the services of the weekdays of Great Lent. So when we began using the Presanctified on weekdays of Great Lent, everybody thought he put it together, because it said so at the bottom of his life. And that's how you see that service attributed to him, which it isn't, by no means. But there it is. It's a, it's a much more monastic sort of thing and a much later sort of thing. But it disappeared from Good, Good Friday, and that's what I wanted to tell you right there. The Lamentations that we do, I mentioned, uh, are a 14th century edition. They were originally done at the beginning of Matins on the Amamos Psalm, the Blessed of the Undefiled in the Way, which is the beginning of Matins for Saturdays, every Saturday, if you uh, follow the order of it. Even in your liturgicon, it tells you how to do that. And on this great Saturday, they felt it would be nice to intersperse each verse with a nice hymn, having to do with Christ and what he did for us. The, uh, it no sooner came in than it started getting shunted around. Uh, and we now do it at the end of uh, Matins, towards the doxology. And that's one of those uh, 19th century innovations. Uh, for, as it always says, for the sake of the people, for the sake of the people, which probably meant they didn't come until later on in the service, and they wanted to catch it. So we'll put it towards the end so that they can. And that's, those hymns are outstandingly done. You know, you get recent hymnography, which is just as good as the old stuff. And most churches sing a slight selection from them, because in English, the rest of them aren't done up so that they can be sung very easily. But on your own, if you want to look at those during your prayers and uh, kind of feel with them, they're outstanding. They are really excellent uh, devotional work. The procession which follows is of recent innovation, which is kind of sad somehow because it's so beautifully appropriate to the themes of the day. This procession is uh, our version of... Uh, our reenactment of our baptismal vows. Most of what's going on in the service is explained by the service itself. And if people look at the service with open mind, they don't need to be told what's going on. In this case, we have Jesus that we have placed in the tomb at the Vesper service uh, in a beautiful procession while we sang about Nicodemus and uh, Joseph taking Jesus to the tomb and laying him in there at that Vesper service. So most people would grasp that that is a dramatic representation of the burial of Christ at Vespers after the taking down. Yes. And that's what it is. So this procession can't be that, can it? It cannot be the funeral procession. It has to be something else. And if you look at the hymns and see what is going on, what is the icon of that day, what is in the church's mind at that time, it, it manifests itself to you. This is the icon of the harrowing of hell. You know, Jesus with, with Mary and or Adam and Eve on each side and the prophets and, and the uh, kings and of the old law, and he's down in hell 
proclaiming the resurrection to those who were there, as the hymn says. And you'll see that in that place of darkness there's light, and there's movement and all of that as you look at the icon. Well, this is what's going on here. In darkness, outside, we go out with candles, which is always the light of Christ. We're moving in the darkness, like in the icon, Christ is moving in the darkness. And then, quite beautifully, we enter the church through the tomb of Christ, you know, underneath. Didn't we all enter the church through the tomb of Christ on the day we were baptized? Because the font is the tomb of Christ. And it's so appropriate that we do this that it's a shame that it's such a recent innovation. But the upside of it is uh, you couldn't do it if you were doing that as a matin service because it wouldn't be dark. So that you would lose all of your uh, symbolism of it. This, uh, the hymns of that diet are definitely resurrectional hymns. I mean, you, nobody who's heard that solemn uh, sung Evlogitaria has any doubt that the resurrection has occurred. And if they did, when you get to the end and sing the troparian uh, of tone two resurrection, you know that this is the resurrection here. So probably this is one of those occasions when you want to lighten up your vestments. Uh, as it says, it used to say in the liturgical guide, I don't know if we kept that, but it used to give directions. Bishop Dimitri, when he was in charge of it, saw that those directions were in there. And whatever you were doing during Holy Week, you want to get a stage or two lighter here, because this is, uh, this is the resurrection coming on here. And it's not like we see at the end of a tunnel, we have just read the resurrectional uh, troparian and we just sang the, the women to the tomb and all that kind of stuff. So we're entering into the joy of the resurrection already, and the Vesper liturgy which follows the next morning uh, can't possibly leave any doubt in your mind when we read the resurrectional gospel. And then uh, right after having tossed around uh, those bay leaves and sung the great uh, Prochemenon, or laurel leaves, or whatever. The symbolism there, I think, is, uh, is obvious, maybe. Uh, laurel... Maybe you would explain that, because some may not be doing Yeah. The, uh, yeah, we, we, you have to do some, some how-tos, I guess. Uh, back with the uh, Epitaphios procession. The flowers are important on the Nash. The flowers are very important because they uh, symbolize life and... Uh, and growth, and the flowers have a beautiful smell, and the rose water that we sprinkle around at that time, and the rubrics are kind of clear, uh, is important because of the, uh, the odor of it. All of this has to do with that Christ in the grave not seeing corruption, that he is life itself, and he has gone to bring life to those who are there. And so you don't see cold, you see, you see warmth, and you don't see darkness, you see light. And you don't see black, you see color and beauty. And uh, even fragrance has to be there. It's, it's very necessary. And we are fully invested. Well, I, the rubrics are very clear. I mean, you, you all get a liturgical guide, right? Okay, good. Have a look at those from time to time. <laughs> you, you might find them instructive. I mean, there's reasons for these things, and, and it's, it's our custom to do this, and, that's, and it's what we do. So uh, follow along. 
and do that. I, I've and the things that we do have meaning. Okay, we don't just do them for the, for the sake of it, because they have real meaning. And if we don't understand the meaning, then we need to learn it. I don't think we need to change the symbols, we just need to learn the meaning of them. And that green bay leaf is very, very important. Do you leave them in your church all week then? No, not all week. But, uh, well, because it becomes a fire problem. But we, you should probably say when it's done. There's something not known as the great prokemenon. Yeah, that's what I said. During the great, that's exactly what I said. During it's the great prokemenon. It's left on through the evening. Oh, certainly. Uh, I have church in my parish twice a day all through Holy Week, or through Bright Week. And we don't finish up our celebration of Easter until... Uh, the, the sad, sad uh, Thomas Vespers when we close the doors. So we leave the, the bay leaves, the laurel leaves on the floor, along with the flowers, all week long. And that night when people come in there all look around, didn't the janitor come? And what is this mess? And, and, and you know, year after year we have to explain it because they don't come to the service, so they don't see, they don't understand. And you have to keep telling them, People, you see these on the floor. Well, we did this this morning, and you should have been here. It was very beautiful, and, and this is what it's all about. And this, this is not one of those recent reenactments. This comes from the very beginning, this, this Laura leaves. It's, it's part and parcel of the uh, Easter reality. Now, the next liturgy up, you see a lot of interesting things about that. In the ancient days, baptism occurred around and about the Vesper Liturgy of St. Basil. And that's why the uh, St. Basil Liturgy uh, mentions as many as have been baptized into Christ and all of that. The baptismal imagery comes out incredibly strong, and it's, that is the beginning. I mean, that was always there. In the West, they still bless the font as part of that, uh, that ceremony. And uh, there's all sorts of uh, miracles have occurred in the East and the West with the font. There were fonts that would fill themselves with water on Easter Eve and then miraculously vanish after the baptisms. Uh, all over the world, I mean, this isn't just an isolated font, they were all over the world. That uh, Somehow the baptisms of Easter Eve are are of who we are, because we are baptized into the death and resurrection of Christ, and when it's done on that night, it's so obvious to everybody. The uh, Old Testament readings which go with that service all come from those early age. They're all symbolic of the resurrection to teach those catechumens what exactly was going on. The, there were 15 readings originally. Uh, we don't do 15 right now in our current practice. And uh, this is because this is the 1888 Tipicon which said this is what we've been doing. It's 130 years ago. It didn't happen. You can't write on the internet. The lazy Antiochians won't read all the services. Uh, they've cut out the readings as if it was an order from Metropolitan Philip last Tuesday. Uh, and when I read stuff like that, I, I, I can't understand why people, I mean, if you can write on the internet, you can read. Pick up a book and, and learn something. We cut those readings out uh, probably 150, 160 years ago. Uh, and we have what we have. Uh, it's the, the most important ones are stuck. I mean, we, we saved the hymn of the three U's. We saved the, the hymn of Moses. 
Uh, you can't do without those. They, they're absolutely necessary. Of those old readings, four have to do with the Passover. That's the type of everything we're doing. Five had to do with the resurrection directly, and four had to do with baptism itself, because this was the baptismal liturgy. We, uh, if you want to uh, study those in a Bible study or something like that, uh, it's very good, and, and I, I certainly encourage it, because uh, it helps people to understand what's going on in the service. But if you read them, it becomes incredibly long. But there are, there are things you can do pastorally, uh, to work things out. That night, we have the, uh, the other procession. And this procession is, is very ancient and very different. Uh, in the old churches, the font was not uh, sitting up on the side of the altar in front of the church. It was a large, permanent uh, receptacle built into the ground somewhere. And there was an, an an importance to proceeding to the font and from the font, especially on these baptismal days. Both during the time of the baptism and after, the, all the newly baptized would go to the font during Easter week in various processions to observe the place where they were just reborn, the place where they died and where they rose again. And hymns would talk about that sort of thing. And these processions were terribly important and this procession is one of those left over from the, uh, the baptismal liturgy, the uh, procession which takes the, uh, the baptizans to the place of their rebirth and then back again to the church to continue to celebrate the, uh, the liturgy at midnight. And this liturgy has with it some of those uh, eschatological overtones, the Second Coming style overtones. Father Basseline of blessed memory, who used to be our priest in uh, Upper Darby, Philadelphia, was uh, a great, uh, tremendous liturgical scholar, tremendous, and spoke frequently throughout the Archdiocese, and uh, this was one of his favorite topics. He would do whole retreats on the, uh, the Rush procession and the second coming. There's a lot of ancient tradition tied to Easter and the 25th of March, which, I don't know, it's hard to overlook it. The ancient church writers were uh, very excited by it. Uh, there's a, a book called The Computation of Easter, which is around, from around 240 AD. It's attributed to St. Cyprian which talks about some of these things, and it's in very powerful when a lot of things come together, when there are, what would you call them, coincidences. The 25th of March is one of those dates that has a lot of incredible coincidences in church history, and in the sayings of the fathers, and in the spiritual life. And this date is very important in the computation of Easter. If Easter falls on the 25th of March, it's called uh, Kyrio Pascha, and it is the most special kind of Pascha you could possibly have. Uh, the last time it will ever happen in our lifetimes was uh, 89, I think, and, and that was if we were on the old calendar. It can never occur on the new calendar, but it won't occur again on the old calendar until well into the next century. 
I mean like the end of the next century. And when that happens, that Easter and uh, Annunciation coincide, the church services are outstanding because you're singing today is the beginning of our salvation and you're singing Christ is risen from the dead, trampling down death by death. You get both halves of it all at once. And that you do not put off Annunciation to some other day. You do it on Easter Sunday. And there's ways to do it. It's, it's incredible how it's all mixed together. But whoever wrote this book, if it's Kiprian or somebody else, felt that the coincidences of that moment would be too great to pass up. It is an ancient tradition that the world was created on March the 25th. It's an ancient tradition that Adam fell on March the 25th. That's the date of Lucifer's fall, March the 25th. That's the date that Isaac was sacrificed, March the 25th. It's the date of the Jews passing through the Red Sea. It's the date of Christ's death on the cross. And you can see that the next thing up is going to be that it's the date of the Second Coming, which we don't put dates to. So they don't. But they certainly talk a lot around it. <laughs> If you were Christ and you were going to come again, <laughs> you know, when the fathers start to talk about these sort of things, they get, they, they walk very carefully, and you have to be. But there is the idea floating around in the tradition that our Lord would come again on Pascha, you know, the consummation of things, that on that day of all days, that he would come again in all his power and his glory. And the Christians would be looking for him, as we always do. And Father Basilene used to quote all of these wonderful fathers talking about that Pascha night, you know, in the darkness of midnight, because Christ comes again on midnight, you know, that on that midnight we should be watching, and there he is, you know, Behold, the bridegroom comes. We sang all the way through early Holy Week. And what are we talking about except Pascha? You know, that second coming theme is too strong during early Holy Week to miss where the, where the target is, and it's Pascha. So that that should be part of this multiple occurrences, that he should come the day he created the world, that he should come the day that uh, Adam fell that he should have died the day Adam fell. You know, all of these wonderful that he should be incarnate on the day that the angels fell. Oh, I mean, it's, it's, it's too rich and it, it's just too much to, to deal with. And yet, the fathers thought it was possible to bring all these things together. But that makes this day the most special day in all the world. There's nothing that can compare with it. So when we're out there on midnight, and all the symbolism of midnight, and all the symbolism of the nighttime, and all the symbolism of our candles, and then, you know, to have the priest begin proclaiming that Christ is risen, there aren't even words to describe the layers of tradition which are all involved there, the layers of spirituality, the, uh, the fullness of, of even the presence of God, it's, it's beyond uh, human conception. 
And in the midst of all of that, you know, usually the priest has to, to make sure the altar boys aren't falling asleep and that the deacon hasn't lost his mind and all the rest of that. And you can do it. And you have to do it. You know, Sayedna was talking about being able to focus on the prayers. And this night, these prayers, so often we have the watch, you know, oh my gosh, now let's see, because we, we have to make sure we're done in time because uh, we started at this time and people fall asleep and, and, and you go from church to church and everybody's got the clock in their face on Pascha night. And really, you have to be pastoral. You can't go on until till sunup. Uh, but on the other hand, you don't have to, uh, to slight the service itself. It's just too beautiful. And too many parishes, after they say Christ is risen, they go inside and start the divine liturgy, and that was the end of the, of the matins. And that was uh, a custom across the diocese for too long, and Metropolitan Philip has worked very hard to encourage people to reclaim the uh, Paschal matins. And I, I certainly hope that uh, if you do anything during Holy Week, that you do the Paschal matins, so that you get to sing Christ is risen and talk about uh, the Red Sea and and the, the katavasiyas of the canon of that night are very strongly tied to the biblical odes and everything that's going on right then. And I, I, would, uh, I would strongly encourage you to, uh, to do them. The music is published. Uh, the rubrics are all over the place there. Uh, I think that you can uh, find your way without any trouble through the rush, through the nocturnes first and then the rush. Those nocturnes, uh, that's the canon for... Uh, for Good Friday, if you hadn't noticed it, and it uh, it's somehow beautiful to be still singing that canon, and end up with "Do not lament me, O my mother," right before we're about to sing "Christ is risen." It's uh, it's awfully powerful on so many different levels, and with many of these services in Holy Week, because they developed over centuries, and because they developed with different themes, you can talk on them on every level and get something out of them and, and do something else with it. And somehow uh, God's miracles uh, are all over the place no matter what we do with it. How am I for time, Father Tim? Okay. There are none, Father. Yes, sir. Just a quick one on pre-sanctified liturgy. We sing, let my prayer rise twice. Do you know anything about the history of why we do that? Oh, it's true. Lord, I have cried, and then we sing it again. Yeah, but it's it's a different thing the second time. It's uh, the second time is part of that old biblical hymnography. It's part of the uh, sung service, and it's being sung there as a canticle, more or less. It's not when you sang it the first time. It's part of the song. Because that's the Vesper song, you're going to go through it. In this place, it's a canticle, it's doing something else. And it's being used almost as an extended perkimenon, in fact, which is a canticle. So they're, they're coming from different places and for different purpose. It just happens to be the same words. No, it's not, it's not just to repeat it. Because they're, they're, it's hard to imagine you're in the same... I never thought of it as a repeat until you just said it. I mean, it's, it's too different. It just happens to be the same words, but you, what you're doing and where you're at is, is a whole different thing. The first time you're doing it, it's the every night offering of incense. It's what the church has always done, the Jews used to do, and that psalm comes from the Babylonian exile. 
when they couldn't make the evening offering and they offered the psalm instead. So the tie, the tie there is, goes back to the psalm writer himself. I mean, you, you, you can't go back any further. The other time around, it is being used like a prokimenon. And it's setting up what's to come. And your action there is focused on the, uh, the about to appear uh, Eucharist. Father Finley. The scripture lessons in the hours, in the royal hours, mm-hmm. Um, in the books, there aren't any specific prescriptions. Uh, do we introduce those scriptures in the customary manner, wisdom, let's attend? Yes. And, and what mm-hmm. is the introduction to the gospel lesson? Is it chatting maybe kind of worthy like Matins, or is it probably like the No, no. It's like Matins. Yeah, it's like Matins. Yeah, and that's sometimes you'll find that written. Yes, sir? Is there a historical reason why in the Tipicon that it tells you specifically what time to do the uh, Paschal service? That's the only, as far as I know, it's the only place in the Tipicon it gives you the exact hour to hold the service. Oh no, if you look back in the appendix in the back, uh, it tells you the times to hold all the feasts. And this this was the, the patriarchal custom in Constantinople in 1888. They were just telling you what they did. and Because uh, it literally says, and the patriarch comes down at this time, and you ring the great bell, then you ring the lesser bell, and, and he moves to his throne, and all that kind of thing. Uh, it gives you an idea when they held the services at that time. Most of them, as you notice, in the middle of the night. Oh, you didn't notice. In the appendix, yeah. Most of them in the middle of the night. Uh, one or two in the morning. This is... Uh, The monastics get up at midnight and start their prayers, and they usually finish everything up by dawn. And that's the idea. It was a, I mean, even though it proclaims itself to be a cathedral church, uh, St. George of the Fenar is really a monastery. I mean, what else is there? And they're, they're still functioning along that level, and that's, that's the way it's set up. But our Tipicon reproduces that faithfully. I don't think the patriarch doesn't actually do it at those hours, does he say it in a, in the, in the middle of the night, he does all those services. What, what, what all, the, all the great feasts, in the appendix in the back of the Tipicon, there's mention when the great feasts are done. He does it still? Ooh, outstanding. Wow. That, that, it's heavy monastic style for him to get up at those hours. I mean, they're not pastoral hours. You wouldn't be doing that in a local parish. But in a, in a community, where everybody lives in the same building, yeah, sure, you can do that. But you can't, uh, you can't really do that in a pastoral situation. My question was really just referring to Pascha. Well, the archdiocese, our archdiocese, uh, is still hanging on to something as close as we can get to the midnight tradition. Uh, Sedna has been asked by letter several times, can you do it at 8 o'clock at night? And he writes back, no. Can you do it at 10.30? Yes. But he wants you, you know, there's a difference between 8 o'clock and 10.30. He wants you to be in the middle of the night. He doesn't want you to be at sundown. Because the, you lose the, it just hasn't been done that way. And that's the, that's the last that he's held on to. When I was in seminary, we were still holding on to Christmas at that time. But that's faded now in 20 years. 
And there was a time the theophany was done at midnight. Those three were often, I mean, that, those are the three that you would think of right away. And we lost theophany first, we lost Christmas next. And as long as uh, he lives, he claims he's not going to give up on uh, Pascha. He wants it late at night. Sir. Christmas, uh, with regard to that, um, what would be the earliest, but still have the latest, uh, late, uh, trying to be close to the midnight? Um, and the reason I ask that is that he doesn't care. We've got several families that, uh, for one reason or another, despite trying to educate and talk to them, mm -hmm. um, and but possibly there's no problem, they're all there with their kids, but Christmas. For a lot of reasons, because the next day, a lot of times they go with family elsewhere, mm -hmm. they want to be a little earlier. Uh, mm -hmm. So I've decided, well, I'll see what's the earliest I could start off on Christmas Eve. And not as, we've been doing it at midnight. And, uh, oh, God bless you. You're one of the last. Well, I would, I, I would like to keep it there, but I also, from a pastoral perspective, again, we've heard a lot about that. would like to find out what's the earliest I could do it without becoming... Well, I'll tell you, when I was in Wilkesbury, I used to do it at 10.30. And then I backed it up to 10, because they wanted it. And Bishop Antoon came for Christmas. And he started hollering because it was too late at night. And he said he wanted it at 8. Now, I don't know if that's pastoral directive or not, but I moved it to 8 after that. And I think in my parish now we're doing it at uh, 9 in there. Uh, I don't know, Sid. Now, what do you think about Christmas? To do the f not to do an evening liturgy, but to do the full liturgy with matins. How early can you get before it becomes absurd? We received from uh, directions from uh, the archdiocese that before we uh, break fast and before we open uh, uh, Christmas presents. Mm -hmm. So it means that between six o'clock and ten o'clock or midnight. So now, every parish, every parish, not to leave it in the, uh, until the morning. No, it's never been our custom. Not in the morning. So now, uh, for example, uh, some churches areas are unsafe. Mm -hmm. Okay, we start a little bit earlier. That's why we said six or seven. Oh, Fine. But if the, the uh, a church community or a community church and safe and nothing wrong for the neighborhood so 10 or 11 or midnight fine. Okay, so it, it, it's whatever There fits. is something else that when it's too late the kids are in bed. Well, they shouldn't be. They should? They shouldn't be. They shouldn't. I mean, I was but a kid about once. If they are, uh, you know, no, that's what he was talking about. That he, uh, if you want to get the kids there, you might pastorally have to work earlier. Uh, you see it both ways. When I was a kid, we went to midnight, and we would often fall asleep on the pew. My own little children, we used to bring a blanket and put it down under the pew, and that's what many adults do, many parents in my parish. They bring blankets, and the kids sleep. And after coffee hour, you come get your kids and go home. <laughs> You know, you wake them up for communion, and, and it was part of our Christmas, it was the feeling of it, you know, that it was late and, and we might fall asleep, so it's some kind of exciting. Most here on the West Coast are doing this. Hmm. They are sleeping, even uh, the, the kids, you know, 
are sleeping and the church is uh, running and uh, we don't have any problems. Yeah, just but, like Easter. But some, some churches, some churches, uh, they have this mm -hmm. argument. Shall we uh, exclude the kids from the service? No, Christmas is for them, mm -hmm. right? For everyone. I think for everyone. I don't know. I don't. Okay. So now, what what they did in Damascus once, they had uh, the service, or they do the service uh, in the evening, and the other day, next morning, ten o'clock, they have another liturgy for mm -hmm. all elders, mm -hmm. okay, and kids. Yeah, here's who has a hard time with the old but people. But there are three uh, three holy tables mm -hmm. for more than one priest, so they can. Uh, yeah. In my area, well, all over the country, the Greeks have to do it in the morning by their... So I, I have had people that said they couldn't make it to my evening service. Well, go to the Greek church tomorrow. Yeah, There's, the church is there. Go. I mean, why not pray? They can't, just because they can't make ours, which is set for the rest of the community, we're rich in churches. I mean, maybe not in every area, but in my area, we have... Uh, I mean, Greeks are everywhere. And it's, it's easy to, I mean, there's seminaries just down the road. You can, uh, you can find a Greek church to go to in the morning if it doesn't work for the evening. But it's hardest for the old people, you're right. They, uh, they don't move well at night. It's very sad. That it's the bad part of life. Father. I have a related question, and that is in my parish, there's some tension between those who would like to have it earlier in the yeah, evening and those who would like to do it at the traditional time. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, is it possible to accommodate both factions, as it were, both schools of opinion, by serving the Vesperal liturgy of the Paramon earlier in the evening, and then doing the, the full festal liturgy late at night? But I'm wondering how much time has to separate those liturgies. Is that clear in the Tipicon? Does the Paramon have to be in the morning? Or? That's been the custom, although obviously it wasn't originally. They formed a vigil. And went right through, and not just that, it was, you know, Pentecost, Theophany, Christmas, and Pascha, all the same. I mean, that, they all did it to the midnight liturgy and the, uh, the late, the afternoon, the sundown, Paramon. And you know, if you look at the Gospel, the birth is with the Paramon. It's, yes. It's not with the feast. The feast, they're already leaving for Egypt. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's That's the case in all four of those feasts. Theophany, Pascha... I mean, how many people come out? You didn't read a resurrection? Oh, I'm sorry. We, we read it uh, this morning. You missed it. <laughs> you know, we do read it. They just, they just don't come. That's, that's the case on all four of those. Because the feast was with the, uh, the Paramon liturgy, not with the other one. The other one usually has something related, something theological, something eschatological, something else going on there. It's... Uh, Oh, you can talk to the bishops and see how amenable they might be to that sort of a thing. It's been tried in places before with some success, and it's been tried in some places with no success. It's, you know, pastoral issues are exactly that. You don't know how a community is going to react till you try it, but see what your bishops say when they, you know, approach them with the whole situation and have a decent scenario laid out. And... Uh, Make sure it's early enough. Remember that you don't want to kill yourself. You know, you're, you're the one doing the work. And liturgy is difficult work. I mean, you're all priests. You know, I don't have to tell you. 
And how many priests can remember any announcements without it written down by the end of liturgy? I mean, you're exhausted. You're the concentration, physically, there's no way you can... So, if you're not careful with the timing, you could find yourself finishing the dismissal and starting prothesis, and uh, you won't be able to do it. You just haven't got it in you. So you have to be pastoral with yourself, too, and make sure that you have the time to recover so that you can serve your people without, you know, being consumed by them. I mean, it's very nice to think of ideas that can suit the whole community when you never think of yourself. But you will after you try it the first time and you, you find you're running to the ground. You say, oh, I'll never do that again, but you shouldn't have done it the first time because, you, you know, what kind of pastoral care did they get? What kind of prayers were you making by the time we're finished? It's, it's pretty tough. That's my concern with a lot of this in Holy Week, that you have to care for your scheduling with some sense, and you've got to make sure you have the help you need, pastoral help, that there are people out there in the parish that are going to come around and do the things that need to be done. My parish would be very happy if I handled all the decorating of the nash myself, all the cleanup afterwards myself, and served all the services, and Father, why did you miss going to visit the shut-ins on Holy Thursday? I can't do all that. I'm, I'm only one human being, and I don't have a bunch of assistants. You, you, gotta be able, you have to think it through first and then lay it on the line for them. You know, you all want this, this, and this. Well, please, folks, you've got to help out because it's a community action. It's not you making entertainment for them. You can turn the TV on and off. You don't turn on and off so easy. And, and also, you think of your Agape Vespers the same way. You know, have a midnight liturgy and then schedule Agape Vespers at 7 in the morning. It, it isn't going to work. You've got to be careful what you're up to. And nobody ever tells you that in seminary. You find it out in your first parish. <laughs> Father Maletios, God love him, spoke once at the Archdiocese headquarters. We were uh, having the dinner with Metropolitan Philip. And he talked about his experiences when he was first ordained in Australia. And he was like that. Nobody told him what you can and can't do. And he found himself in, in a lot of very interesting situations because you don't think ahead. And he warned us, please think before you do anything. What are the ramifications of that? And think next year too. You know, what is it, how is it going to affect your parish life? What are they going to, you know, all the way down the line? You do something this year, are you going to have to do it again next year? Become, you know, you did it. It's already a parish custom. You have to think way down the line before you start doing any of these things. You know, be careful, be careful. And also before you change a parish custom. You know, they, they tell you, you know, Uncle Tanus comes in the altar, well, Father, we always did it this way. Well, sit down with a bunch of people and find out, did they really always do it that way? And did it always work? And is this something you all want to continue? Rather than before you say, well, I'm the priest and I'm telling you it'll be this way today. <laughs> yeah, and maybe there was a reason why the five priests before you chose to do it the other way. And you'll find that out after you try to do it the way you wanted. And too many of us have found ourselves in that situation and had to backtrack later and make all kinds of public apologies and say, oh no, you know what you were doing. It's better to ask first before you uh, do something shocking. Sir? The coloring of eggs is traditional. The red ones, evidently. The red ones, there's, there's an off, I mean, they show up in the icons even. Uh, the blessing of, the, of eggs, well, the blessing of eggs because you're eating them. But at least in our, in our diocese, the custom of the red eggs is very strong. And we, I can't think of any parish that doesn't uh, color the red eggs. Uh, a lot of priests take a stand against blue, green, yellow, and uh, pink. 
and all of that sort of thing. Because, you know, the red, the red eggs are symbolic and, and very traditional, and the other ones are uh, Easter bunnies and uh, things like that. And, you know, you have to kind of keep your eyes out what you're doing. But yeah, I'd say Easter eggs are, you do them in the old country. I, I, the Greeks do them. Everybody does. It's universal. I, I have no idea when. I mean, this. I mean, there's no books that talk about that, but uh, clearly, it's it's quite established and very important too. I mean, the whole thing about the tomb and you know when they break the the, the eggs and the tomb is over. There's there's too much with that 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 is deep seated in our people. 